female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He hit your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Hello and welcome back to Man It Is, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. My name is James and thank you one and all for joining me for a really interesting episode this week. Very research heavy, very information dense episode. Today we are talking about a ferry disaster that occurred on the Amazon River in the 1980s that led to the death of 300 people. Now, I know what you're thinking, a ferry, hey, that's not a type of animal, that's a boat. Why is it on an episode of Man It Is? Well, because, my friend, my curious friend, from now on I'm going to call you Curious George, you're so curious. The reason we're talking about this today is that not all of the victims died in the crash, not all the victims died from drowning. Something was in the water that contributed to the deaths of nearly 300 people, and today we are going to get to the bottom of it. That's right, it's another Man It A Mystery episode. It's another episode like the Mellowway Terror Beast, like the uh, the, the Wolf, the Beast of Chevaudan, we're not 100% sure what caused these uh, these these killings, these deaths, but we are going to do our best to find out and get to the bottom of it. Before we move on, um, I want to acknowledge the main source for this episode. It's an episode of River Monsters, hosted by Jeremy Wade, uh, and uh, that episode is called Amazonian Apocalypse, or Apocalypse on the Amazon, something like that. You can watch that, I think, on um, the BBC or, or some kind of channel like that, uh, but it's a great episode. A lot of information was from there, and a lot of uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Wade's uh, experience kind of went into, you know, the, the hypotheses that go around solving this mystery. Up until his episode in 2014, not a lot had been done to research this uh, this incident in the Amazon. Um, it's been 40 years almost since that happened, uh, so we're going to dive in today. We're going to try and figure out if we can find out what led to the deaths of nearly 300 people that, that, that fateful night uh, in 1981. So without further ado, we're going to jump into it. The Sobral Santos 2. The Sobral Santos 2 was a Brazilian ferry which operated on the Amazon River. It was constructed in 1957 and was primarily built from steel. Initially, it was used as a rubber freighter but was later converted to carry passengers and cargo. It was a motor vessel powered by diesel and it had approximately 600 horsepower. And that, my friends, is the extent of the maritime knowledge and research I could find on this ship. So I hope... I hope you appreciated it. It took a very long time to find that out, and I had to translate the page from Portuguese. I thought Brazilian spoke Spanish for like three hours while I was trying to figure this out. It's Portuguese. It could have saved me a lot of time. Anyway, on September the 19th in 1981... The Sobral Santos II was making its weekly trip between Santarém and Manaus when it sank on in Obidos Harbour. Earlier that day, two other river ferries had been taken off the river due to maintenance issues. Because of this decision to stop these two vessels and not replace them with additional ferries, the SS2 became overcrowded with passengers trying to make their way from the river down to Manaus. By the time the ship capsized, it was carrying approximately 500 passengers. Some early reports indicated that the ship was only designed to carry around 300 passengers. 
In addition to being grossly over capacity, a number of goods had slipped from their containment area, forcing passengers to gather on the exit side of the boat, causing it to list. The ship became unbalanced and it started taking on water. By the evening, the ship was lost to the water and 300 people were dead. Some passengers were unable to escape the internal areas of the ship and drowned, while others were swept away with the current. Some people were crushed by moving cargo and many lost limbs. Hundreds of bodies or body parts were never identified or recovered. Of the 500 approximate people that were supposed to be aboard, only 178 had survived, as reported by the captain, Elio Palhares, that day. The sinking of the Sorbrel Santos II was one of the worst maritime disasters to ever occur on the Amazon River in history. A survivor of the disaster, Josina Calades, spoke about her experience during the sinking. She boarded the boat with her four children, aged between seven and two. She was immediately concerned by the overcapacity passenger and cargo areas, but by the time she decided her family should leave, it was too late. The boat had already set sail. When the boat arrived in Obidos Harbour, she was still awake. The first thing that made her think something was amiss was the sound of crashing cargo that had fallen from its holding area on the upper deck. She jumped from her bed and plunged into the water. The boat, unbeknownst to many of the sleeping passengers at the time, had already begun to sink under the surface of the river. Her foot became stuck between pieces of luggage, and when she tried to pull it out, she was deeply cut and began pouring blood into the water. She managed to surface and came face to face with one of her sons, who was looking for her. At this point of the night, the boat was completely submerged, lost to the rivers of Obidos. The water was filled with screaming, bleeding passengers. Jacinina says that initially there were hundreds of people in the middle of the river screaming for help, but one by one they disappeared under the surface of the water and didn't come back. Eventually, she says, it was just silence on the water. Jocelyn was still bleeding, and she says that she feels lucky that she wasn't attacked by whatever was in the water with them. Her and her son were taken to a nearby hospital, where she was thankfully reunited with two of her other children. However, and very sadly, her two-year-old son, Rui, was gone. His body was recovered the afternoon after the incident. Ever since the disaster in the 1980s, rumours circulated that not all the passengers died from drowning. Many eyewitnesses claim seeing an obscene amount of blood in the water, and others state that a creature, or creatures, were seen feasting on bodies in the water. Tales of man-eating fish spread like wildfire, and many of the survivors never went back in the water for fear of being dragged under by the animal or animals that took their friends, families, and fellow passengers. One man, soon after the ship sank, volunteered to dive down and find out what had gone wrong. After a few short minutes, the diver re-emerged and said, There's definitely something down there. The movement of the water. And he trailed off. The diver refused to go back down. When the ship was retrieved, bodies were recovered with chunks of missing flesh, and only their hands seemed to be untouched. What caused these deaths and what kind of animal would even be capable of doing this became subject to a debate that would last over 40 years. The Amazon River is the second longest river in the world, and some scientists actually now think it might be the longest, beating the Nile. The Amazon River stretches from the coast of Brazil and makes its way almost to the western coast of South America in Peru. The Amazon is known for a wide variety of wildlife, many of which live in or around the river. A number of animals could be the alleged culprit that killed and ate many of the victims of the Sobral Santos II disaster. 
Well-known Amazonian predators include piranhas and anaconda, but the river is also home to bull sharks, black caiman, and even electric eels. Other apex predators that inhabit the shores include jaguar and river dolphins. Any one of these could have played a role in the death of the passengers, but mystery continues to be unsolved. In 2014, British angler Jeremy Wade went to Obidos to investigate the role that local fish species may have played in the loss of life during the disaster. His findings were documented in the River Monsters episode, Amazon Apocalypse. Initially, after talking to eyewitnesses and investigating the area of the river that the ship sank, Jeremy Wade suspected a horde of piranhas could be the murderer. However, piranhas are only active in the daytime, and the sinking occurred in the dead of night. It's also highly unlikely that the piranhas would have been able to take such large chunks out of their victims. After learning that whatever the animal was, it dragged victims underwater and dismembered them, Wade concluded that the animal must be quite large. Jeremy decides that he must investigate the Amazon heavyweights and try to figure out the killer. The Paraba catfish, also known as Brachyplastoma, is one of, if not the largest river fish in the Amazon River. An important food fish, thousands of tons of paraba are cached every year for human consumption and exportion. The paraba is rumoured by some to swallow men whole. Very large fish can grow up to 300 or 400 pounds. A report written by President Roosevelt about these fish contained tales of some individuals reaching 10 to 12 feet in length. It is said that these fish are even more feared by locals than the black caimans that inhabit the water. In one account, a local fisherman was found to have been swallowed headfirst up to his waist by one of these catfish. However, it is important to note that neither the catfish nor the human survived this encounter. However, it is unlikely that one of these paraba catfish were the culprit, since lacking teeth, these animals are unable to perform dismemberment. These predators can drag humans underwater, but they typically hunt alone, and so they wouldn't be able to kill hundreds of people in a single night, even if they wanted to. The next animal on our list that could be a culprit is the Arapaima. Arapaima gigas, also known as Pirachu, or Piracucuru, I can't pronounce that, are a species of massive bony tongue fish native to the basin of the Amazon River. Once believed to be the sole species in the genus, it is among the largest of freshwater fish. This species is an obligate air breather and needs to come to the surface regularly to gulp air. Wade concluded that the attackers of the the attackers of the passengers aboard the SS2 could not have been Arapaima because they are unable to drag individuals underwater or dismember them. The next animal that could have been the killer is the black caiman, and this is certainly a popular choice. The black caiman is the largest member of the crocodilian family Alligatorae. It is a carnivorous reptile found in the Amazon basin and other South American freshwater ecosystems such as slow-moving rivers, lakes, and periodically flooded savannas. A mature individual of this species can reach a length of at least 6 meters. Black caimans are apex predators that feed on a wide variety of terrestrial animals. Black caimans have been seen grabbing and consuming lesser species, such as the spectacled caiman, and have also been known to cannibalize smaller individuals of their own type, just like other huge crocodilians. The caiman could be the killer involved in this tragedy, as they can drag their prey underwater and definitely can tear them to shreds. However, rather than venturing out into the midst of hundreds of feet of deep whirling water, these amphibious predators prefer to stick close to the shoreline. Furthermore, caimans are pretty territorial and large populations are unlikely, so it is improbable that a large number of them attack the people. One of the final predators on the list of possible culprits is the bull shark. 
The bull shark is a species of requiem shark commonly found worldwide in warm, shallow waters along coasts and in rivers. It is known for its aggressive nature and presence in mainly warm, shallow, brackish or freshwater systems, including estuaries and lower reaches of rivers. Bull sharks may actually be the most deadly form of sharks to humans since they are territorial, may be found in a wide variety of environments and will attack on the first sign of provocation. As with tiger sharks and great whites, bull sharks are among the three shark species most known for attacking humans. After conducting research on the bull shark, however, Jeremy Wade came to a conclusion that they are not as numerous as he had previously believed to be in the Amazon. They are also lone hunters that can't take on a large population at once. The next animal that was a suspect was the boto, otherwise known as the river dolphin, the most dangerous mammal in the river. The Amazon river dolphin is the largest species of river dolphin in the world, with adult males reaching around 185 kilograms in weight and 2.5 meters in length. Adults acquire a pinkish color, more prominent in males, giving it the nickname the pink river dolphin. Sexual dimorphism is evident, with males measuring 16% longer than females and weighing about 55% more than females. Like other toothed whales, they have a melon, an organ that is used for biosonar. The dorsal fin, although short in height, is regarded as quite long, and the pectoral fins are also quite large. The fin size unfused vertebrae and its relative size allow for improved mobility uh, when navigating flooded forests and capturing prey. They have one of the widest ranges of diets among toothed whales and feed, up to f feed on up to 53 different species of fish, such as croakers, catfish, teras, and piranha. They also, consume other rivers, uh, they also consume other animals, such as river turtles, aquatic frogs, and freshwater crabs. The boto is much more adaptable and has been known to assault and even kill bull sharks. Wade has attempted to swim with a number of boto in the past, but he's only spent a short amount of time in the pool before bailing. After researching the Boto and their interactions with humans, he realizes they are more, power, more or less powerless to dismember or submerge humans. What's more, they don't typically attack humans unless they have done something to irritate them. In the same vein as the river fish that came in the bull shark, the Boto are ruled out as suspects. Now that all of the large predators in the river basin have been ruled out, Jeremy realizes that it was probably a case of sheer numbers. As a result, he looks into Kandiru Aku, a parasite that conducts flesh that conducts mass nighttime hunts. They can only kill by eating human flesh though, not by ripping off limbs or sucking victims under the water. As he continues fishing, Jeremy learns that catfish formerly populated the lakes in unprecedented numbers. He now returns to the Paraba catfish hypothesis. They may be able to drag individuals underwater and then scavenge on the bodies. He keeps fishing and discovers fresh information about the Parara, also known as the red-tailed catfish. The fish is common for the aquarium trade, although his massive adult size makes it unsuitable for all but the largest aquariums. They feed on fish, crustaceans, and fallen fruit. As a schooling predator, the fish can drag prey beneath the waves in vast numbers. Wade also learns that once they get their victims, the fish are capable of conducting a powerful underwater dive that could easily submerge an adult man. His next catches are several huge red tails on Paraba. He believes he has a general understanding of what transpired this evening, and I think I have come to the same conclusion as Jeremy. This is what I believe as well. 
The conclusion is that the culprits were likely swarms of paraba and red-tailed Coda Rosa catfish, drawn in by chum from nearby fishing processing operations, and possibly joined by the black piranha and other small carnivorous fish. It's also possible that Boto, caimans, and piranha and bull sharks uh, joined in the frenzy. Large red tails and paraba are theorized to have dragged the victims underneath the water while they struggled and eventually perished. Large schools of uh, piranha could easily have swum in the next morning during the daytime for an easy breakfast. And that, my friends, is the story of the Sorbrel Santos 2 sinking, a big mystery that has yet to be confirmed, although Jeremy Wade has come up with a very compelling theory for what happened, and I am in the camp that believes that that is likely what happened. Um, not one individual species is likely to be able to have pulled this off, to have killed 300 people and eaten them, uh, but, you know, a combination of them absolutely could. Uh, and you know what? Like, it's it, it's very likely. The middle of the night... Hundreds of people splashing and bleeding in the water. They become prey for hungry animals. Caimans will probably make the the trip from the shoreline into the middle. Bull sharks can take that splashing around as a threat and attack, as can river dolphins, um, which also eat eat meat and are carnivorous. So very possible. It's also likely that the next morning the piranhas came in and finished off what wasn't already eaten. So a horrific way for a lot of people to go, and of course very sad uh, for the 300 approximate people who perished that day. It does go to show that you know you have to you have to think if two of our ferries get cancelled, we can't just shove everybody onto the same one. Uh, hopefully that lesson was learnt. Although I did read some YouTube comments saying that the ship was eventually salvaged and sold to a company that refurbished it and put it back on the river. However, I couldn't find any. Um, conclusive evidence on that. I also read somewhere that um, a similar model of uh, ship, um, the same model of ship, I believe, was actually sunk in Nigeria or something, and a similar thing happened uh, where a bunch of people died because it was over capacity. So uh, maybe our lessons aren't being learned, and maybe they should be. But anyway, that was the Sorbrel Santos 2 story. A lot of research went into this story. There's not a lot of um, information really out there, easily accessible. So I had to do a lot of digging. It took about a week. So hopefully you enjoyed that one. And if you did, give me a, do me a favor and um, you know leave a little happy five-star review on this if you can. Uh, and let's move on to my favorite uh, part of the episode. We're going on to our Scratch of the Day. We have three Scratch of the Days today. And the first one is from my neck of the woods um, up in Sydney. Uh, you may have heard about this. It became international news this week, uh, five lions managed to escape their enclosure at Taronga Zoo, uh, causing a, a panic and a lockdown in the zoo. So we're going to talk a little bit about what happened there. Um, but fun fact, and I guess a little bit of personal connection, and I have talked about this before, um, at Taronga Zoo, they do offer, uh, you know, overnight stays for guests. It's called uh, the Snore and Roar, or Roar and Snore, um, where guests can, you know, you pay for a premium ticket, you get a tour of the zoo at nighttime, you go glamping, which isn't really glamping, it's just camping, it's just sleeping in a really uncomfortable, um, you know, canopy, uh, and then the next day you, you know, wake up and feed some animals, so that was actually happening the night the lions escaped, and these uh, guests who were doing the roar and snore had to be ushered to safety, so I've done that, and uh, the idea, it actually is pretty terrifying, like from someone who's firsthand slept in those tents, if a lion was roaming around, that actually would be pretty scary, so let's talk about this, this is CNN reporting, but every news source on the planet was reporting it, um, CNN just was the first one I clicked, so, um, Okay, this, the headline is, Lions slip loose from Sydney Zoo enclosure, overnight guests rush to safety. 
CNN reports, five lions managed a, a short escape from their enclosure at Sydney's Tronga Zoo early on Wednesday, prompting the zoo to sound a Code 1 alert and rush guests of its Roar and Snore overnight stay program to safety. The alert was issued after footage, video footage showed four cubs and one adult lion outside their enclosure at 6.30am, although they were still in an area separated from the rest of the zoo by a six-foot fence. Zookeepers tranquilized and returned one cub, while the remaining four made their way to the back of their own accord. The zoo said its emergency response was enacted less than 10 minutes after the lions escaped the main ex exhibit area. The lions were confirmed to be back in their enclosure by 9am, local media reported. There were no injuries to people or animals, and the zoo opened as normal. This is a quote from Taronga Zoo Executive Director Simon Duffy. The zoo has a very strict safety protocol in place for such incidents, and immediate action was taken. The breach triggered a full lockdown. CNN affiliate Nine News reported, noting that uh, alarms were heard between 6.30 and 7.30 a.m. local time. Officers were called to the zoo as a precaution, according to CNN <laughs> affiliate uh, Seven News. So apparently all the Australian news is just CNN affiliates. Cool. The police were called uh, to the zoo and staff hurried to lead guests of the Roar and Snore program away from danger. It's another quote. They came running along the tent saying this is a code one get out of your tent and run come now leave your belongings magnus perry one of the guests told local media as his family left the zoo taronga zoo the largest in the city is home to seven lions including five cubs and two adults according to its website the zoo does not yet know how the animals escaped and has launched a formal review i'm going to check into that because i swear i saw another news article that said that they did figure it out so here we go um this is from seven news which is apparently a cnn affiliate um this headline reads taronga zoo reveals how five lions escaped enclosure as guests speak out so Sydney's Taronga Zoo has offered an explanation as to how five lions managed to escape their enclosure on Wednesday morning. However, many questions still remain about the incident. Four cubs and one adult lion were found in a small space outing uh, of their main... Sorry, were found in a small space outside their main exhibit at about 6.30am, sending the whole zoo into a lockdown. About 50 guests were taking part in the zoo's Roar and Storm overnight camping experience. They were on site at the time of the incident. Some of the guests were forced to hide in a bathroom for almost 90 minutes. I've been in those bathrooms, and they're not too bad, so whatever. The integrity issue with the fence surrounding the lion's exhibit is being blamed for the breakout. Simon Duffy is quoted saying, They, the lions, did breach the containment fence. We don't have the exact details of how and why that occurred. This is a significant incident, and a full review is now underway to confirm how the lions were able to exit their enclosure. Duffy said video camera footage confirmed that it took less than 10 minutes for a full emergency response to begin after the lions escaped. Four of the five lions made their own way back into the exhibit. However, one of the cubs had to be tranquilized. Duffy is quoted saying, The decision was made to safely tranquilize her due to, the, due to ensure that she also went back into the exhibit. He confirmed the lions are now in a secure location at the zoo and will not enter the main exhibit again until a full review has been conducted. We conduct drills regularly for these types of scenarios. I'm very proud of and want to thank all of our staff and guests that were on site this morning who acted calmly and ensured a successful outcome. Camaray uh, Public School Year 4 student Kayla Pygay was one of the zoo's roar and snore guests at the time of the escape, the overnight trip, her first ever at a school camp. Oh no. 
she is quoted saying, there were some zookeepers with us and we kept on asking them what was going on and they said they didn't know, uh, but they would tell us when they knew, Kayla told Sunrise, which if you're not aware is a breakfast TV show in Australia. Um, then they told us that five lions were not in the zoo. <laughs> then they told us that five lions were just not in the zoo in their main exhibit. It was fun and scary, uh, but then when they let us go out, everyone thought it was safe. They nearly kept us there for two hours. Kayla's teacher, David Dempsey, said he kept his 30, uh, 30 students calm during the lockdown by doing yoga and playing silent games. But as the boredom set in a little bit after an hour and a quarter, we just sat there and chatted, he said. It was probably the ringing of the alarm bell that drove most of us insane more than anything else. It was a great adventure for the kids and they took it in their stride all day long and they just went on with their business. Good on them. So there you go. It was a, there's not a lot of um, information, but it was a breach in the fence, apparently. Also, a lot of the reporting, a lot of the headlines, I mean, it's not typically untrue. They were saying, you know, like five lions have escaped, but really it was one lion and three and five and four cubs. So uh, maybe a little bit of sensationalism there. I don't know. Um, what do you think? So that story was uh, really exciting for all of us in New South Wales and Australia. Um, and when I was like doing a little bit of research for this story, uh, yeah, I realized, oh, okay, you in America and India and Canada are all like uh, talking about this as well. So it was a no-brainer to pick that story for one of our Scratch of the Day segments. Okay, moving on. Um, this is a sad story. I'm going to put the obligatory content warning up. This does involve the death of a child. Um, this is a true story from only two days ago. Uh, the headline reads, Seven-year-old boy suffers several heart attacks and dies after bite from rare animal. Um, this is actually a very tragic story. A young boy has died in tragic circumstances after being stung by the most dangerous scorpion in South America while putting on his shoes. The seven-year-old boy died after he suffered seven heart attacks when he was stung by one of the world's most toxic scorpions. Luis Miguel Fortado Barbosa, from the municipality of Anhibio in Sao, uh, Sao Paulo Estate, Brazil, was getting dressed to go camping with his family on October 23rd. The scorpion struck with an, anti God, with an agonizingly painful sting while Luis was putting on his shoes. His mother, who was 44 years old, told the local media as soon as he put it on, he screamed in pain. As we didn't find out what sung him, we kept looking. But his legs started to turn red, and he said that the pain was getting was increasing. That's when, I, that's when I imagined that it was really a scorpion and that I needed to find it to find out which one it was. Local media reported that the family discovered a Brazilian yellow scorpion, or Titius serultilus, in their home. The creepy crawly is the most dangerous scorpion in South America and is responsible for the most fatal cases due to its extremely toxic venom. Um, the woman and her husband rushed their son to the University of Sao Paulo facility, a faculty of medicine and clinical uh, hospital. Louise was immediately hospitalized in the pediatric unit and his condition even showed an improvement over the next day. His mother said they even removed him from some medication. He opened his eyes, tried to talk to me. I kissed him and he had to be sedated again because he was very agitated. Sorry, I'm just looking at a photo of them there. It's a very cute family. This is very sad. Uh, but after he suffered a series of cardiac arrests, he worsened and died on October 25th, uh, which is two days after the stinging happened. Following his death, this is Jesus is sad. Following his death, uh, the mother said we were getting ready to go camping because he loved playing in the water. He, as usual, was very anxious. He seemed to want to live everything he had to live in a single day. Today, I realize 
that it's as if he was really in a hurry to live. The 44-year-old mother, who also has another son, uh, Yao Felipe, Felipe, who's five years old, said she's grateful for the time spent with her son. Uh, the city hall of Anhembi reported that they have recorded a total of 54 incidents involving scorpions since the beginning of the year. They added, Accidents involving scorpions are not rare because the municipality is located on the banks of the Tite River and has a large forest area. Um, really sad. I don't know if people in, in America do this, but in Australia, even in, you know, uh, you know, metropolitan areas of Australia, we're, we're always taught, like, even when we're kids, if you leave your shoes outside, um, that you always check them for spiders, not necessarily scorpions, but you always hold them upside down and tap them out, and I guess that might be a good lesson here as well, although I, I just don't know. It's just really sad. There's nothing really to take away from this. A young boy died from a scorpion bite. That's like, uh, it's really, really, really sad. Um, I'm going to move on now to our final uh, story. This also involves children, but I believe not a death. Um, <clears throat> so this is a, a the from Seven News as well. Uh, the headline reads: Children injured in terrifying sea lion attack in Lancelin. Um, despite their playful nature, the wild animals can still pose a dangerous risk to beachgoers. Uh, two children have been attacked by a sea lion at a popular Western Australia tourist town in a terrifying end to school holidays. The youngsters, who Seven News understands are both under the age of 10 years old, were injured on Sunday afternoon when the animal attacked in Lancelin, a coastal town about 127 kilometers north of Perth. The children were being, uh, sorry, the children were given first aid at the town's nursing post before being taken via an ambulance to Perth where they were admitted to uh, Joondalup Health Campus. They were transferred to Perth's Children's Hospital overnight with non-life-threatening injuries. One child was discharged earlier on Monday, while the other patient remained at BCH in a stable condition as of Monday night. Lancelin is home to a number of sea lions, which are known to be curious and considered not typically dangerous to humans. But despite their playful nature, the wild animals can still pose a dangerous risk to beachgoers and can attack when they are feeling threatened. In 2007, a 13-year-old girl was mauled by a sea lion at the popular holiday town. She suffered a broken jaw and cussed to her throat after she says the wild animal launched itself out of the water and bit her on the face as she surfed behind a boat. Jeez. Sydney Aquarium marine scientist Grant Willis said the girl being attacked while she was in the while out on the water was bizarre. He told AP News Agency in 2007 that the protected species would only attack humans if provoked. It may have been like a ragdoll toy. It, may, it could have been play for them, just wanting to shake it around, he said. Um, that's all the informa information there is there. So thankfully, those kids uh, did not pass away from that attack, but a reminder that sea lions are not uh, to be played with. They're not dogs. Well, actually, I guess more accurately, they are like sea dogs, um, but in the sense that like you don't just go up and pat any dog because it can bite you on the face and break your jaw. Um, guys, that is it for our episode today. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, like I said at the outset, a lot of research went into this episode, so uh, please throw us a happy review. Give us a follow on Instagram as well. I noticed that, uh, you know, we've been having that Instagram going for about a year now and we don't have very many followers. So go and give that a follow. We always post our, you know, new episode updates when we, when we uh, do launch new episodes. So if you follow the Instagram, uh, that way you'll never miss an episode. And we have a bunch of other social media bullshit you can do as well. As always, feel free to send me an email to give me any feedback or to send in any ideas for stories for Man Eater episodes or your stories for Killer Cryptids episodes or Man Eater movies. Uh, and one final thank 
thank you to everyone on the Patreon. Um, well, everyone on the Patreon. There's like two people. Uh, but thank you so much to those people for supporting the show. Uh, really appreciate it. If you didn't see... Um, we released a, a, a little tier list video on Patreon, and we also uploaded the uh, the audio of that to the podcast feed. So if you wanted to have a hear about, have a have a listen um, to what that was like, you could have done that, um, and you still can. And if you want to watch the video version of that, you can check it out on Patreon for uh, five dollars a month. You can join up and get a bunch of stuff, uh, including that video and lots of other little things as well. And it's only five dollars a month in Australia. For Americans, it's probably close to like two bucks fifty a month. So. I think is worth it. Give it a look if you want to. I'm not your dad. You don't have to. I'm not your fucking dad. I wish I was, though. I'd be a good dad to you. If you didn't have a dad out there, I'm only 29, but I'll be your dad. I'll adopt you. That's a weird question just popped into my brain. Can someone younger adopt someone older? Like, can I adopt a 40-year-old? Send me an email with you. If you're if you're a family law specialist, can you... um? Give me an uh, answer to that question. Can I adopt a 40-year-old? And if there's any 40-year-olds out there who want to be adopted, let me know. Um, this is a weird ending to the episode, so I'm just going to cut myself off before it gets any weirder. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week, uh, the next few episodes. Uh, really interesting stories. We're going to be looking at crime and punishment using animals. So the uh, the Colosseum in Rome, um, you know, feeding Christians to lions, the uh, use of elephants for execution in Southeast Asia. And I also found a practice in, I think, Greek and Roman society, although it was in Africa as well, I think, where um, people would put people in a sack with another animal like snakes or roosters or monkeys and throw the sack into a river. So I want to talk about that because mainly just because I'm curious as to why people would do that to the animals. Anyway, uh, have a great week and please, as always, stay safe out there because as we know, it's a jungle out there. (laughs) 